Thanks for downloading this podcast from Healthcare Improvement Scotland. My name is Dr Brian Robson and I'm the organisation's medical director. We regularly share new ideas and presentations from thought leaders in the fields of innovation, improvement and integration. In this podcast we hear from Elaine Inglesby Burke. The title of Elaine's talk, A Promise to Learn, A Commitment to Act, sets the scene for her focus on organisational learning and acting to improve. She shares with us the journey of improvement at Salford Royal Hospitals and tells us about the highs and lows of that journey. Elaine's focus on the patient and family experience of care and how that influences action at Salford is outstanding. Listen out for the discussion about meaningful measures about standards of care and also about the use of safety climate survey tools. Now let's listen to our conversation with Elaine. So that brings us to today's speaker, another international uh, expert in quality improvement. Elaine Inglesby Burke is the executive lead for nursing governance, patient safety and quality improvement. and also the Deputy Chief Executive at Salford Healthcare. Uh, Elaine is a registered nurse and a a specialist nursing in critical care and general medicine. Uh, Elaine continues uh, in clinical practice with regular clinical shifts and executive safety shifts with frontline staff. She is a Florence Nightingale Leadership uh, Scholar and took the opportunity to undertake advanced uh, leadership and quality improvement training at Harvard and also at the IHI in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Elaine was also the nurse advisor on the Berwick Review Group, uh, a promise to learn, a commitment to act. And we're absolutely delighted to have Elaine with us this afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Elaine. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks, Brian, for that introduction. Now, Elaine, you now have the, the, the ball, so please, uh, we're looking forward to your talk. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Thank you. So good afternoon, everybody. Um, So as I've already been introduced, I'm I'm the chief nurse here at Salford Royal, and I I want to preface my presentation, I guess, with something that I believe uh, particularly passionately about, which is longevity of leadership in an organization to enable a change in culture. So my starter for 10 is I'm in my 11th year now at Salford Royal as its chief nurse. So everything I'm about to share with you, um, I guess, comes from uh, a long journey that a team have worked together on for at least seven years. Um, So preface it with that. Uh, A Promise to Learn and a Commitment to Act was the title of the Don Berwick Review into Patient Safety in NHS England. Uh, And that Patient Safety Review uh, was in um, in response to the Francis report, and I'm and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, I think globally you can't not know what the Francis report was about. But but suffice to say that it was a failure of the board in that organisation to listen to patients' concerns and to correct deficiencies and tackle what was described as an insidious negative culture that tolerated poor standards. And there was significant clinical disengagement from management and leadership responsibilities um, to the front line. 
I've, I've split the 290 recommendations into five categories. And I hope what I'm about to present will give you a sense of um, what a provider organization in particular can do to try and address some of these categories, uh, predominantly being the fundamental standards and measures of compliance, being open and transparent, and seeing an improvement in compassionate caring and committed nursing, seeing stronger healthcare leadership, and actually using information to improve um, care and systems. So I've, I've sort of split up um, Don's recommendations about improving the safety of patients in England into six key areas that I believe are fundamental to changing the culture in an organization, but particularly changing the culture in an organization where clinicians are leading at the front line. And so I'm going to take each of these um, uh, and, and describe uh, what we've done here in Salford Royal to try and address and move um, that improving safety forward. So first and foremost, leadership, which we believe equals commitment, visibility, encouragement and compassion from all leaders, not just the clinical leaders in an organisation. And, and we've been doing walk-arounds in this organisation since 2007, since we returned from the Exec Quality Academy uh, in Boston with IHI. And we found they worked really well for us. We had a script when we went out to meet with staff. Staff knew when we were coming. And they were great for starting the dialogue on when do you think the next harm might occur on the ward? What are the systems that are frustrating you? But we found that they're really not good enough. They're not enough to actually break down the barriers of, of a hierarchy in an organization. And we do know that the currency of leadership um, in an organization is what the leaders pay attention to. So we've found that to get situational awareness, we now do work with so we actually work alongside our staff, and that's every executive, whether they're a clinician or not, and every senior manager, whether they're a clinician or not, actually put a uniform on appropriate to the area that they're about to work with and spend four hours in those areas. And we do that every month. Um, and that helps us to understand how the people and the systems operate at the front line. It helps us to understand the complexity of the roles, of the jobs that we're asking them to fulfill. Um, it also helps us to recognize that there is a middle tier in an organization. So we've done lots of work around engaging with our front line. But actually, we were a little naive in that what we thought we were doing was absolutely the right thing to do. And it I guess it was, the proof has been in the outcomes, but it has been at a cost to the middle tier in our organization where they have felt less engaged. And so actually as, as executives and senior leaders, we almost bypass them. So leaders need supporting and staff need supporting at all levels in an organization. The commitment, visibility, encouragement and compassion um, needs to find its way into the organizational development and the culture of the organization. And so accountability for what we expect to be achieved in the organization 
but hierarchy, no. We've spent several years trying to break down the hierarchy by being equals across the organisation, by being clear that we need to listen to our staff. And I guess the most important thing for us is that we must be authentic. We must, in place of arrogance, have humility. We must recognise that we don't always get it right. In fact, probably more often than not, there are problems within our systems that are frustrating our staff, our patients and their carers. And so I guess as leaders, we are very clear that we can aggregate up in our organisation and we can satisfy ourselves that we're doing a great job. But when we dig a few levels down in the organisation, we then start to test what's the percentage of time that, that leaders spend on safety versus operational pressures. And we've been quite surprised in Salford at, 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 at the outcomes from that, that operationally tends to supersede um, uh, the safety issues in the organisation. So moving on to measure transparency and understanding variation, um, as I've already said, at organisational level we can assure ourselves or indeed reassure ourselves that we're doing really well. We have, a, we have a, an enviable HSMR and shimmy. We have enviable outcomes on pressure ulcers, on falls, on the four national harms that are measured. But actually, when we take that data and we go down and look deep in the organisation, what does that picture tell us? Are all the harms coming from one or two areas? So if we aggregate up, we're really pleased with what we find. But we actually go now and look for variation across the organisation. And we believe at sub-organisation and, and deep down in the organisation, these are the areas that we need to understand the variability on. So we need to understand the measures of harm that will be occurring at, at service and ward level. We need to understand the perspective of our patients and their families, not just in national surveys, but at surveys that are taking place at the bedside um, where they can uh, log on online and tell us at any point in a 24-hour period how they're feeling. Uh, we need information on practices that encourage the monitoring on safety. We're really, really keen on understanding data on staff feedback, staff satisfaction, how they feel and whether they're delivering a quality service that they'd be happy for their mum to receive. Uh, staffing levels, incident reports, um, we feel it's really important to get down to that level of detail at ward and departmental level. So I guess a question I would ask was, do you know how well your trust or organisation performs on each of the indicators identified here? And you'll know how your trust possibly performing on them, but do you know how each of your wards and departments are? So we started by surveying the safety culture in individual wards and departments and what a surprise we got. So we perform really well on national patient and staff satisfaction surveys. We perform really well on, on the number of incidents that are reported across the trust compared to our peers in the NHS. But actually, when you really get down to understanding the culture of safety in our wards and departments, we saw a very different story. Um, 
So safety culture surveys can look at the culture of safety, the teamwork and the communication that's operating at department and ward level. It's great for understanding variation between units and across disciplines and it should definitely only be used as a learning and intervention tool. It should never be used for performance management. And so here's just some outcomes from some of our um, uh, culture survey work. We do know now that culture is local. So we can talk about the organizational culture, but actually when you get down into individual wards and departments, it is very local. And finding variation around that local culture is really key for improving safety. So you can see here two different wards, Ward 1 and Ward 2, same questions asked. Um, of, of staff across those wards, predominantly nursing and medical staff. And you can see that if we applied the same methodology and the same interventions across the whole organization, uh, we probably wouldn't get very far. We need to really find the local variation and work with that local variation. So what you can see here is in Ward 1 that none of the doctors felt it was difficult to discuss errors yet 40% of the nurses did. And in Ward 2, 40% of the doctors felt it was difficult, and only 10% of the nurses did. So how we approach individual wards and departments to understand their culture and to understand what they need to improve, we need to understand the variation in the culture that's operating. So same hospital, different cultures, vastly different cultures on different wards. So we do go looking for variation, and this is our nursing assessment and accreditation system. And it's been operating now for about five years. It was a slow, slow burn, uh, and that was intentional. So there are 13 standards with multiple um, criteria within them, and the standards reflect leadership, environment, and care. They reflect best available evidence. They reflect the CQC standards, the Essence of Care, NHSLA. So they're all national standards that are available to us. And the wards are assessed independently and consistently by the same team. So it is independent of the ward themselves. This is not peer assessment and it's not self-assessment. And if they score red, um, they will be assessed within six to eight weeks. If they score amber, they'll be assessed within four months. And if they score green, it will be eight months. And the key here is sustainability. So uh, you have to achieve green three times consecutively to be able to apply to a board subcommittee and produce a portfolio evidence and present um, to be accredited at what we call safe, clean, and personal every time. And if you do achieve that accreditation, the ward manager has earned autonomy over her ward and department for the recruitment of staff and for the means with which she achieves the standards. And she also earns the title ward matron. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions asking me, do they get... Uh, a reward financially and the first four wards that went forward were asked if they felt that their salary should be improved as a consequence 
and unanimously they said no because the achievements of these standards are not down to a single individual. In order to achieve the standards requires a team to operate cohesively and for members of that team to own areas of the standards for themselves. So it was a proud moment for me when nursing turned down money for great teamwork. What we have found with this system is that great leadership absolutely plays out with uh, great care. That where we've got outstanding leaders, we've got skateboards who have sustained it for three and four years now. Where we've got red wards, um, if they achieve, if they get red twice consecutively, uh, everybody across the organisation knows that the ward manager, uh, we will look for mitigation, and if there isn't any mitigation, the ward manager is held to account for those standards and is enabled to find a job elsewhere in the organisation. And I can say without doubt, four ward managers have been removed to date. And uh, they have been what we describe as square pegs in round holes. They are outstanding clinicians, but they lack and probably will never have the leadership skills to enable distributive leadership within their wards and departments. So it works well for us, and it is our sustainability model for fundamental standards and for our quality improvement system. So when we develop a change package that has demonstrated to result in an improvement, that change package is built into this system. And that's how we measure the reliability of the change package in an ongoing way. Transparency is really important to us here at Salford. So we, 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 met, we fundamentally share our, um, our harms. We share our nursing assessment and accreditation system, and we share our staffing levels at the entrance to every ward. And this is, the, this is unified across the organization. In, in every ward and department, when you walk onto the ward, this is the first thing you see, and there'll be a sink underneath it asking you to wash your hands before you enter the ward. And so we flag up our MRSA bacteremia rates, our Clostridium difficile rates, our falls and our pressure ulcers, and we don't measure whether there were four last month or eight the month before. We're really interested in the days in between because we know that that's what engages our staff. They don't want to have a zero on this board. Um, and they're really, really proud when they can say, it's been 360 days since a pressure ulcer in my ward. Um, it really does allow them to pay attention to the right things. So they use data every day to drive up their standards. They use statistical process control charts to track whether or not the changes are resulting in an improvement in their environment. So we build capability. We use improvement science. And importantly, we network our learning. And isn't that why we're here today? Um, so this is just an outcome from one of our quality improvement collaboratives, which was about reducing cardiac arrests outside of critical care areas or high care areas. And, and I won't go into detail here, but we use the Breakthrough Series Collaborative and the model for improvement here in this organization. And it's been outstandingly successful on, on 
on multiple levels, not least deep staff engagement with our front line, deep, deep staff engagement with our front line. And so this is the change package that we use across the organization now. It's been tried and tested using PDSA in our wards and departments. They tried and tested, tried and tested. They, they, they absolutely acknowledged that failure was our friend, that if they tried something and it didn't work on one and then it didn't work on five patients, then don't bother trying it. We don't want to scale up and spread something that doesn't work. Um, and so they came up with these seven changes. They're tried and tested in this organization. We've seen a reduction of 70% of cardiac arrests outside of high care areas in this organization by utilizing the tests of change that our own staff found in this organization. We don't have a medical outreach team. We don't have a critical care outreach team. We've empowered our own staff to find solutions to their problems, and they found it in spades for us in this organization. So we use Breakthrough Series Collaborative for the majority, the majority of our large-scale quality improvements across the organization. So QI capability building is part of what we do now. So we have an improvement directorate. Um, we use lean methodology. We use the Dartmouth Clinical Microsystems um, training. We have, we've had over half our staff now go, now go through collaborative learning. We have a clinical quality academy. So multiple ways of engaging our staff to get to, I guess, a Kaiser Permanente model where we have some experts at the top of the pyramid, but actually our frontline teams and the majority of our staff are experts themselves in how to use the model for improvement uh, in their in their wards and departments. It would be really in, it would be really unusual now to go onto our wards and departments and not hear them say, we changed our, our, our visiting hours. We ran some tests of change, and we found that the best one that worked for staff and patients was X. It is the language that we use across the organization now. So staffing levels and our staff are equally important. So Berwick said that staffing levels should be consistent with the scientific evidence. And for those nurses of you out there, you'll know that we should feel pretty ashamed, actually, that the national evidence base for safe staffing is very, very poor. So come on, guys, we've got some work to do. Uh, that staffing should be adjusted for patient acuity and con local context, and it should be made public and easily accessible to patients and carers. Um, and, and Don Berwick charged NICE to produce definitive guidance. So the National Institute for Clinical Excellence have already produced the first uh, guidance on acute, and we're about to release the accident and emergency. We publish our staffing at the entrance to every ward, and we um, we take it to the board every month. Boards should take full responsibility, and Salsa Royal does. We've got processes in place where we capture our staffing data four hours every day, every four hours every day. We have a culture where staff are able to raise concerns about staffing. We take a multidisciplinary approach. And we make time in our staffing levels to offer direct and indirect care and contact hours. That's really important. 
I think there is a there is a growing feeling across the country that indirect contact hours aren't valuable and we believe they are extremely valuable and they have equal value to direct care if you're to uh, plan care appropriately um, to deliver the right outcomes to patients then you need to spend time assessing and documenting the care that you're giving so listening to staff uh, our current practice is through our clinical governance, our work widths, our walk rounds, appraisals, incident reporting. But we're looking at the moment at what it might look like in the future. We're really keen on a system that we saw out in the uh, Southern Hemisphere in Australia and New Zealand, where you can at any point in time see where your staffing matches your patient uh, nursing hours and demand. Uh, so we're moving on that pretty quickly. Uh, problems are investigated until they're proven otherwise. And I think that's been a lesson for us here, that we've had seven years of, of great uh, movement along the quality improvement journey. And we're always surprised when our staff tell us that there's a problem and we go, oh, surely not. And actually, we've moved into the domain now that says there'll always be a grain of truth in what your staff tell you. And so we listen to staff and we're prepared to hear what we would have probably considered before to be unthinkable. And we're in the ball game now of trying to understand what merits um, a concern, what merits closing a theatre list if our staff are raising concerns, what merits stopping admitting patients to a ward if we feel there is a, there is a standard that says I wouldn't want my mum to be cared for in that ward, then why would anybody else's mum, why would anybody else's mum be um, blindly admitted to that ward and then not understand the systems that are operating? We're, we know that our data is slow to catch up with the reality of what's happening in the organisation. So we know from an HSMR perspective, we're pretty good. We've got a low HSMR, but actually we've talked about variability and our staff tell us about our variability. We need to understand what the real issues are and what the perceived issues are. And often there isn't a great gap between perception and reality if we could just sit down and speak to our staff. So listening to our staff, normalising critical language, looking at world-class communication systems and being aware that our staff need to operate in a psychologically safe environment for our patients to receive safe care. Sorry, guys. And so down to patients now, and I've not left them till last because I believe they're last. I've left them till last because I think it's the important message I want to leave us with. So Mark Holland is a young man who had had a specialist metabolic uh, complex metabolic disorder since birth, a genetic metabolic disease, and his first adult uh, inpatient was with Sulfadroil. It was his first transition into adult services, and within five days of transitioning into adult services from the paediatric service, he lost his life. And he lost his life in our organisation because we didn't listen to his mum. And she was the expert in his care, and he had learning disabilities. And we didn't listen from top to bottom. 
from the expert consultant to the ward sister on the ward to the junior doctor to the matron to pals. She had the emergency protocol in her handbag that would be used in the paediatric hospital. And we said, but he's in an adult service now and we do things differently. And oh, we did do it differently because he lost his life as a consequence of us not listening. There was no other reason for him to lose his life in this organization. And we learned from that and we learned the hard way for a mum to lose her son. But we have found that it is a common theme in serious incidents that the patient and or their family knew something was going wrong, told staff and weren't listened to. And so as a consequence of Mark's story and Mark's tragedy, uh, we now have the Mark Holland Metabolic Unit. So he does live on. And we developed a help system, uh, which is called Helping to Empower Loved Ones and Patients. This is visible at the entrance to every ward, and it's visible on every locker, and we give cards out. And it basically asks patients and their families if they ever feel vulnerable and don't feel able to share it with staff, or they've shared it with staff and they've not been heard to ring the number. And the number goes through to the clinical site coordinator. She knows when it's a help call because it's a different ring. And if she, she visits within 30 minutes, if she can't resolve the issue, it goes to the clinical director. They are two calls away from the nurse or medical director, whatever time of day, whatever day of the week. It has never, ever been escalated to myself or the medical director. And we've not had an issue with patients not being heard in, in this type of environment. So the patient voice should be heard at every level of the service. We should be challenging the national patient survey results because it's being comparatively better than average good enough for your mum. It's definitely not good enough for mine. We use a lot of shared decision-making and we've just started to use shadow coaching where we're encouraging non-clinical staff to shadow clinical staff in clinics and on ward rounds and then taking the opportunity at the end of those clinics and ward rounds to give feedback on how it might have felt um, if they had been a patient, a non-clinician. We're moving now into patients being able to undertake that shadow coaching. We're finding out what matters most to our patients, and not just through surveys, but personally for each and every individual. And so this is the best, I guess, of what we do in Salford, uh, about listening to patients apart from the surveys. So we have boards at the back of every bed, and we ask what matters most to you. And so you can see we've got the patient's name, we've got the patient's preferred name, We've got the consultant, the nurse, and you'll see there a small box in the corner. That's for the nurse's photograph, so that on every shift, as the nurse changes, the photograph of the nurse who is looking after you is highly visible to you and your family. So it's easy to identify the nurse who will be able to answer your questions. And we ask the patient, what matters most to you while you're in our care? And we ask their permission, can we flag this at the back of the bed? And then we ask them before they go home, 
did we deliver what mattered most to you? And we find that that's the most powerful piece of information that we need to change the way we deliver care to our patients. Not what we think as healthcare professions matters most to patients, but what actually matters to them. And there are some of the examples that we've had from our patients. So Berwick for me was quality first, but safety above all. And so we should all be following the lead of organizations who've successfully cracked a problem. We should steal what they've done shamelessly, and we should use it wisely in our own organizations. So thank you, IHI, and everybody else up and down the country. We should bring staff together to solve problems collaboratively, because I can't solve the problems at board level. Our staff understand the complexity of the systems that they're operating in. And believe me, you get them together and you give them the tools and they will come up with the solutions. And those solutions will be sustainable because they found them. So in summary, I believe leadership is the currency that staff will pay attention to what leaders pay attention to. Find new ways to listen to our staff. Find new ways to listen to our patients, other than surveys. Measure and know the variation across your trust, because it will give you a very different picture from the aggregate data. Pay attention to safe staffing. Don't expect your staff, our staff, to deliver great service if we tie their hands behind their back, because there aren't enough to deliver it. We don't need to wait for anybody to tell us to do it. We can start making the changes today. And so for me as a chief nurse, whether I'm a nurse or whether I'm a healthcare professional or a member of staff in this trust, I actually saw Francis and definitely the Berwick Review as our promise to learn and our commitment to act. So thank you. Well, thanks to Elaine for a great QI Connect talk. And if you want to hear how the questions went or Elaine's reflections on her talk, then you can get the full recording on the Healthcare Improvement Scotland website or on YouTube.